Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History. In the last episode, the Bastille was stormed by the Parisian mob. The capitulation of the infamous prison represented a capitulation of old regime France. But that representation is in part due to what comes after the fall of the Bastille. For in the wake of its demise, French society would crumble as well. It is time to detail the events of a terrible anarchy which engulfs France. An anarchy we know as the Great Fear. So without further ado, let us begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 13, The Great Fear. On the evening of the 14th of July, 1789, King Louis XVI was visited in his private apartment by the Duke Rochefoucauld Lyoncourt. The Duke had asked for a private audience with the King to deliver frightful news from Paris. The Bastille had fallen, its governor having been gruesomely decapitated in the process. According to an unverifiable account of what transpired, King Louis inquired, Is it a revolt? The Duke replied, No, sire, it is a revolution. And so it was. With Paris in open rebellion against the crown, all eyes turned to the king. Would Louis choose suppression? Or would he choose concession? Would he seek to suppress the National Assembly and the city of Paris by force? Or would he concede to their revolutionary agenda? one which would permanently end Bourbon absolutism and establish a new era of constitutional monarchy. On the 15th of July, with the news of the Bastille's fall having made its way to the Assembly, the deputies of the nation were anxious to find out. The National Assembly planned to send a delegation to the King, as it had always done in the past. On the 15th, however, it was the King who came to the Assembly. If the chief importance of the fall of the Bastille was the indisputable end of Bourbon absolutism, then the fact that it was the king who came to the assembly underscores this fact in a simple yet symbolic way. Furthermore, when the king arrived, Louis came with no train, no trumpets, no immense fanfare, no palace guards with colourful uniforms and fancy feather-filled hats, no earthly reminders of his divine right to rule or his preeminence, as the most important man in the kingdom. He came, for a king at least, practically naked, with only his two brothers, Provence and Artois, at his side. Upon his arrival, he was greeted with no earthly reminders of his station either. The deputies did not bow, but instead received their king 
in silence. No cheers, no claps, just silence. A naked king and a naked reception. Mirabeau was to thank for the latter, having cautioned that the king's intentions could be hostile and that the silence of the people was a lesson for kings. The silence, however, did not last long, for the deputies erupted in applause once the king made his intentions known. Repudiating the bloodshed, the king announced that he would pull his troops further away from the capital. The king would yield to the assembly and to the people. With the safety of the city now secure, 88 deputies left at 2pm for the city in some 40 carriages to inform the people of Paris of the good news. Bailly noted in his diary that as they arrived in the city, the crowds were immense, but despite their numbers, the people remained calm as the carriages worked their way through the streets. Upon hearing the news of their city's safety, the electors of Paris, the self-installed municipal government of the city, cemented their authority by naming Bailly himself as mayor of the city. Furthermore, the Marquis de Lafayette was named the new commander of the city's militia, shortly to be known as the National Guard. These appointments were greeted with great satisfaction from the crowd, as both individuals were widely respected and known to the people of Paris. With the leadership of Paris settled, the Parisians turned their attention to national leadership, in particular the issue which started this whole affair. With the people's hero, Jacques Necker, return from exile. The recall of Jacques Necker may have been the will of the people. It may have been encouraged by Mirabeau and other leading voices in the assembly, but it certainly did not, in any way, shape or form, have the support of the two chief architects of his original demise. On the 16th of July, the Comte d'Artois argued forcibly for the king to recommit his troops to the fight fearing that Louis was losing his opportunity to suppress the National Assembly as originally intended. While the king had originally responded to the Parisian revolt by concession, Artois continued to lobby for military suppression. Troops surrounded the city, and more than 40,000 copies of a declaration by the king had already been printed, waiting to spread the word of the Assembly's dissolution and the reinstallment of the initial Estates General. All that was needed was the order to begin. Yet the war minister, Marshal de Broglie, argued against Artois' plan. Stating that he lacked enough reliable men to subdue Paris, de Broglie argued that the insubordination which fested within the army prevented suppression from being a viable option. For that same reason, the Queen's plan of transferring the court to a frontier city like Metz was also deemed unachievable. In short, the king was advised that the military force available to him was just too unreliable to be of any use. The king had no choice but to back down. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, what if the armed forces had been reliable? Well, historian Hilaire Belek has an interesting point of view. According to Belek, the reliability of the troops was just part of the problem. The other part was their insufficient number to tame a city the size of Paris. The foreign mercenary troops, who were mainly employed in the repression of the popular feeling therein, were not sufficient to impose anything like a siege. They could, at the various gates, have stopped the provisioning of the city, but then, at any one of those separate points, any one of their detachments upon a long perimeter more than a day's march in circumference would certainly have been attacked, 
and almost certainly overwhelmed by the masses of partially armed civilians. Could the streets have been cleared while the ferment was rising? It is very doubtful. They were narrow and torturous in the extreme. The area to be dealt with was enormous, the tradition of barricades not forgotten, and the spontaneous action of the excellent fighting material which a Paris mob contains had been quite as rapid as anything that could have been affected by military orders. The one great fault was the neglect to cover the invalids, but even had the invalids not been looted, the stock of arms and powder in the city would have been sufficient to have organised a desperate and prolonged resistance. The local auxiliary force, of slight military value it is true, the French guards as they were called, were wholly with the people, and in general the crown must be acquitted of any considerable blunder on the military side of the equation. It certainly did not fail from lack of will. Lacking a military force of both adequate size and discipline, and facing a well-armed city in open revolt, Louis had no choice but to abandon any hope of imposing his will through military might. The fall of the Bastille and the successful raid of the Invalids cemented the National Assembly's hold on power. Through the possession of that power, it cemented its legitimacy. Many royalists decried the actions which empowered the Assembly as being illegal, but legality was a mute point. As the Roman general Pompey the Great once said, Stop quoting laws. We carry weapons. After the 14th of July, it was the Assembly who possessed the weapons, and they would use that possession to quote their own laws. Having accepted the necessity of retreat, the king recalled Necker. The return of Necker would not be enough, however. In order to solidify his concessions and restore calm to the capital, the king would need to go to Paris. His Royal Highness was clearly unsure what to expect in the chaotic capital. Louis named his brother Provence as Lieutenant General of the Kingdom and wrote his will and testament should he not return. The king was correct to fear Paris, but his demise in the city was still several years away. The British ambassador noted the humiliating scene that Louis found himself in as he entered the city. The revolution in the French constitution and government may now, I think, be looked upon as completed, beyond all fears of any further attempts being made by the court party to defeat it. The entrance of the king into Paris was certainly one of the most humiliating steps that he could possibly take. He was actually led in triumph, like a tame bear, by the deputies and the city militia. Imagine that for a second. A king led like a tame bear in his own kingdom. Generally, in history, kings are only led about like a tame bear when they're the prisoners of another rival kingdom. It's a scene that you would expect in ancient Rome, when some barbarian chief has succumbed to the might of the Roman military machine and has been led naked in chains throughout the great city. Sure, Louis wasn't chained. He wasn't naked. But in a symbolic sense... He was exactly those things. He had been forced to accept this revolution, a revolution that not only infringed on, but outright repudiated his divine right to rule, a revolution which had destroyed any notions of absolute monarchy. And while he was still immensely popular in the provinces and even in the urban communities, the fact that Louis had been forced to accept this outcome 
lingered on the minds of many. As historian Bellick noted, military suppression did not fail from lack of will. It failed from a lack of viability. The people of Paris knew this all too well, and their reception to the king made that clear. The Austrian ambassador noted, it is certain that during his journey, there were very few cries of vive la roi, whereas on all sides, there were shouts of vive la nation. Long live the king. It was no longer as common a phrase as it used to be. In Paris, Bailly presented Louis with the keys to the city at a ceremony at the Hotel de Ville. While presenting the keys... Bailly couldn't help but remind the king of his new position in French society. Referring to Henry IV of France, who came to power after civil war, Bailly told Louis, These are the same keys that were presented to Henry IV. He had conquered his people. Now it is his people that have conquered their king. Ouch. That's got to sting a little especially for a guy who believed in his divine right to rule. After mumbling a few words to the assembled crowd, Louis returned to Versailles. The charade was over, at least for the day. Despite all the future depictions of Louis being a heartless and cruel monarch, Louis was undoubtedly a man who genuinely cared for his family, and, reunited with them, they all took great pleasure in his safe return. He had... After all, feared death just hours earlier. Henceforth, however, Louis would only be able to see part of his family. The other part, he would never see again. For on the night of the 16th of July, his brother Artois and several leading families of the nobility began the great noble emigration. For them, the revolution had already gone too far, and they would no longer partake in this chaotic circus. Departing to various neighbouring nations, these disgruntled nobles would watch the revolution from the sidelines, and it was from the sidelines that they would also scheme its demise. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, if you're listening to this and you're trying to figure out just why the fall of the Bastille is so important, I don't blame you. So far, all that's happened is an undermanned and almost empty prison has fallen to a force that outnumbered it roughly 80 to 1. The governor lost his head, Paris got a new city mayor, the king has had to call off his plans for a coup. To top it all off, the king's little bro has fled the country in a temper tantrum. Sure, That's a lot. But is it really that big? Is it really that important? Well, if that's all that this supposedly grand and hugely significant event produced, well, I too would be disappointed. But that's not all this grand and significant event produced. It's outside of Paris, and it's outside of Versailles, that the events occur which give the fall of the Bastille its grand significance. 
It's what occurs off-centre stage that turns a symbolic defeat of royal troops into a practical capitulation of royal power. Historian Peter Kruupten summarises the events that unfold. If, however, the insurrection had been confined to the capital, the revolution could never have developed to the extent of resulting in the demolition of ancient privileges. The insurrection at the centre had been necessary to strike at the central government, to shake it down, to demoralise its defenders. But to destroy the power of the government in the provinces, to strike at the old regime through its governmental prerogatives and its economic privileges, a widespread rising of the people was necessary in cities, towns and villages. This is exactly what came about in the course of July throughout the length and breadth of France. That's right. An uprising was about to occur. And according to Kruupkin, this uprising, this anarchy which engulfed France, was only made possible due to the fall of the Bastille. It is here that the toppling of some poorly manned prison, which was already scheduled for demolition, gains its grand significance. Historian John Dahlberg Acton summarises the fall of the Bastille's meaning slightly differently, but notes the same outcome. A new reign had commenced. The head of the great house of Bourbon, the heir of so much power and glory, on whom rested the tradition of Louis XIV, was unfit to exert, under jealous control, the narrow measure of authority that remained. For the moment, there was none. Anarchy in the capital gave the signal for anarchy in the provinces, and anarchy at that moment had a terrible meaning. Before I divulge just what that anarchy looks like, thanks to our friends in the peasantry, let us start with the situation in the urban communities. Even before the Bastille fell, the towns and cities of France had been unsettled by frequent disturbances. Disturbances which were, you guessed it, often linked to the cost of bread. While this civil unrest was scattered across the country and sporadic in nature, it was enough to cause a headache for the local royal intendants. But, just as Necker's dismissal lit a powder keg of violence and anger in Paris, other cities too erupted in revolt at the news that the people's champion, the people's messiah, had been unjustly dismissed from Versailles as part of a noble conspiracy. Upon hearing the news, the governor of Dijon was arrested by the local populace, and the garrison at Rennes defected to the people's cause. Several towns across the country had their arsenals broken into as well. As the news spread that the electors of Paris had taken over the city and established themselves as the new city government, many towns followed their lead. In some towns, their own electors took over, and in others, fresh elections took place. Regardless of how the transition of power occurred, these new municipal governments were filling the vacuum of royal power that occurred as royal authority disintegrated throughout the kingdom. Royal authority which was disintegrating because of the events in Paris. Newly installed representatives of the Third Estate occasionally shared power with the nobles who had been governing the city, while in other communities the old noble oligarchies were purged and replaced entirely with men from the Third. Unsurprisingly, these new local governments would not take orders from the king, but from the National Assembly alone. The Assembly's grip on legitimate power was being solidified as town after town declared their recognition 
of its sovereignty. This, however, was a push-and-pull situation. To characterise the municipal revolution as men of the third merely feeling a power vacuum created by Paris is not true. Sure, members of the third were pulled towards this outcome because of the events in the capital, but the men who comprised the new municipal governments all across the nation were pushed into taking what were undoubtedly revolutionary acts. And just like the electors of Paris, the men of these new local governments were pushed into this revolutionary direction by one key factor, the deterioration of law and order. As royal authority disintegrated across France, so too did civil society. News of the events of Paris mixed with the already deadly combination of empty stomachs and conspiracy-induced fear. Before long, millers and farmers, who the mob deemed to be hoarding grain, were attacked or killed. When that didn't result in food, the surrounding environment was intact instead. Forests were ravaged for deer and rabbits, despite hunting rights forbidding their slaughter. Ponds were drained for fish, pigeons killed en masse, Mobs didn't care what laws they were breaking if the crime resulted in food. Inevitably, the scope and severity of the violence expanded over time. In Agda, on the Mediterranean coast north of Barcelona, the bishop made the mistake of refusing to surrender the rights to the local mill. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the hungry mob relinquished him of his right to breathe instead. In Troyes, the mayor was killed, and in Marseille, the garrison was disarmed, while across the country, prisons were liberated, forts occupied, and arsenals ransacked. The violent disturbances of Paris had rippled throughout France, and many in the third were worried that things were getting out of hand. Thus, the men who led this municipal revolution throughout the country were both pulled towards this outcome by the events of Paris and pushed towards it by the troubling unrest the Parisians had inspired closer to home. Ultimately, however, the unrest in the urban communities paled in comparison to the chaos that began to unfold in the countryside. So far in this entire revolution, we've been focused on a lot of different members of French society. The court, the nobility, the bourgeoisie, the urban masses. But we haven't really talked about the peasants, Which is interesting when you consider that 8 out of 10 people in France lived in urban communities of less than 2,000 people. And indeed, only slightly less than 8 out of 10 people were peasants themselves. But the fall of the Bastille brings the peasants front and centre for the first time in this revolutionary saga. Because for the first time in this revolutionary saga, the hungry peasants were about to indulge France in a not-so-small dose of complete and utter anarchy. A spoonful of chaos makes the government go down in the most delightful way. I want you to imagine you're a peasant. You're an average French peasant. You're hungry. You're struggling to find work. You live in a small, isolated community of about 600 people. How would an isolated, hungry fearful, illiterate peasant such as yourself react to the developments across France. You and your community have been informed that the foreign queen, who you know to be an adulterous whore, has been colluding with the king's brother Artois, who you know to hate the third estate. Collectively, their schemes have unseated Necker, 
the man who you know to be a champion of your interests and that of the thirds in general, the man who you know to be calling for price controls on bread, and the man who you know to be the only minister capable of saving the French state from bankruptcy and complete anarchy. Not only have the conspirators purged Necker, your messiah, but the Queen and Artois are scheming to purge the National Assembly too. Your delegates that you've chosen and you've entrusted to ease the burden of your miserable existence. Only through mass insurrection and the heroic bravery of your brethren in the Third Estate in Paris did the capital defeat this noble conspiracy. Of course, the noble conspiracy has not been vanquished, as the nobles are still hoarding grain, keeping you hungry, and the Queen and Artois have agents everywhere watching your movements. Now, so far, all this information I have just described is true, provided you take a certain viewpoint of the world and you believe certain sources amongst the underground press. So imagine if some fake news made it into the mix. Say, I don't know, that when Artois fled the country with many leading noble families, they vowed to return with foreign forces to avenge their cause and retake what was theirs. Perhaps add some fake news about the Queen plotting to blow up the National Assembly or poison poor King Louis himself and replace him with the dreaded Comte d'Artois. As you may have guessed, what I'm suggesting to you are not hypothetical rumours. These were the actual rumours that accompanied the news of Paris's insurrection. As the real news spread about the events across France, the fall of the Bastille, the municipal revolution, the emigration of Artois and the nobility, so too did the fake news spread as well. Before long, it was considered a fact that the British fleet waited off Brest for a moment to strike. Spaniards gathered near Bordeaux to plunder the city. Austrians threatened Lyon and assembled in the Netherlands. And the Polish were going to land at Dunkirk. God only knows how. Hell, even the Swedes were going to get in on the action. Yes, the Swedes. In fact, the Swedes were supposedly going to be headed by Artois himself. Ragnar Lothbrok 2.0, if you will. Not only did fake news spread about foreign troops waiting to attack, waiting for the signal from the evil Marie Antoinette or Artois, but fake news circulated throughout the peasant villages that brigands, bandits and mercenaries were in the pocket of this noble conspiracy, and these groups were intent on burning their villages to the ground, sowing their fields with salt, and making the peasants pay for ever questioning the supremacy of their noble-blooded overlords. Now, With all this information, imagine what you would do. Imagine if you're an isolated, hungry, fearful, illiterate peasant. What would you do if royal authority was collapsing, your family was starving, and foreign troops or ravenous mercenaries were coming for you, your possessions, and your loved ones? The response to this news from the French peasantry was a combination of fight and flight. Fear-induced fight and flight. In response to this alarming series of events, real and imagined, the French peasantry unleashed an event we know as the Great Fear. Those who indulged in flight 
took what possessions they had and hid in the woods, the caves, the mountains, or gathered in larger communities seeking collective defence. Those who sought to fight instead also gathered in larger numbers and armed themselves and began patrolling nearby territory for the brigands, bandits and mercenaries, as well as foreign troops. The Revolutions de Paris reported the situation well on the 27th of July. It is said that several thousand armed brigands coming from Montmorency Plains are causing considerable damage, cutting the green wheat, pillaging people's houses, even murdering anyone who opposes their designs. Women and children who fled the bloodshed arrive in tears from these places. Orders are already given and the civic militia hasten to these places, along with cannon, and after a forced march they finally arrive. There is general alarm, and the toxin can be heard in every parish. And then, who would believe it? There are no enemies and no brigands, and it is hard to know how the alarm could have started. Stories of armed militias and peasants finding no bandits are common. There is a reason, after all, this period of time is known as the Great Fear, and not the Great Plunder. One amusing story originating near Angulum details how a dust storm was interpreted as a sign of an impending brigand army preparing to attack. Another story from the 24th of July details how 3,000 men assembled to hunt down brigands only to find a herd of cows. Yep, cows. Not even the cows which behaved like the killer rabbits from Monty Python, just plain old global warming causing cows. Now, while cows materialised, bandits, mercenaries, foreign invaders rarely did. And that's because this was all fake news. The Comte d'Artois did flee France, but he didn't take with him 5 million livres to employ a mercenary army, as was rumoured. The Queen was eventually in cahoots with her brother, the Emperor of Austria, but she wasn't yet assisting foreign invasion. In short, the peasants were readying themselves to fight against the counter-attack of absolutism, yet royal absolutism was still in shell-shock. It would be some time until the forces of counter-revolution could marshal its troops onto the field. In summarising the revolution and the great fear both so well, historian Francois Furet states, The revolutionary consciousness from 1789 on was informed by the illusion of defeating a state that had already ceased to exist. That line, in my opinion, is right on the money. Bourbon absolutism had crumbled. Its supporters were scattered and isolated. And despite their best efforts, royal absolutism had no real hope of being reincarnated. Furthermore, while the revolutionary consciousness was trying to defeat the defeated, so too were the peasants. When the great fear commenced, the peasants sought to defeat a noble conspiracy that had largely ceased to exist. What had not ceased to exist, however, was feudalism. What had not ceased to exist was French society in the form of the old regime. The notion of absolute power may have been dead, the National Assembly may have been all-powerful, but this change had not materialised into any significant form for the French peasantry. 
this change had not yet become tangible to the average French peasant. The noble gentry still owned large portions of land. The peasants were still contractually obliged to the nobility through feudal dues. Now, to remind you what feudal dues the nobility had, and in many ways the poorer noble gentry relied upon to survive, here's a brief summary of the ancient and unique signorial rights which you could find throughout France, in the words of historian Jean Jaurès. There was not one action in rural life that did not require the peasants to pay a ransom. I shall simply cite with no further commentary the right of the assises over animal used for ploughing, the right of signorial ferries for crossing rivers, the right of the lead that was imposed on goods at markets and stalls, the right of signorial police on minor roads, the right of fishing in rivers, the right to dig wells and manage ponds, the right of fire, fouage and chimney, which imposed a kind of building tax on all the village houses, and finally, the most hated of all, the exclusive right to hunt. Feudal rights thus extended their clutches over every force of nature, everything that grew, moved, breathed, the rivers with their fish, the fire burning in the oven to bake the peasants' poor bread mixed with oats and barley, the wind that turned the mill for grinding corn, the wine spurting on from the press, the game that emerged from the forests or high pastures to ravage vegetable plots and fields. In short, feudal rights were an all-encompassing burden on the peasantry. Wanted to get married? There's a tax for that. Wanted to transfer property? Well, there's a tax to the local lord for that too. If you wanted to cross the river, you'll have to use the lord's ferry. If you want to mill flour, you'll need the lord's mill for the job. And if you want to cut down some trees from the forest to prevent yourself from freezing in the cold winter's night, well, you'll need the lord's permission to do so. Put simply, old regime France was the stuff of nightmares for libertarians everywhere. Given the imposition of these feudal Jews, these signorial rights, it should really be no surprise what happens next once all these heavily armed bands of peasants realise that there's no brigands or mercenaries or bandits to fend off. There's no foreign troops to push back. Suddenly, throughout large swathes of the kingdom, the countryside descends into anarchy. Why? Well, with royal authority non-existent, these isolated, hungry, fearful, illiterate peasants seize the opportunity presented to them. They begin to settle the score. They begin to rectify centuries of injustice. And to be frank, who can blame them? It is here that the great fear transforms itself. Originally, the great fear was fueled by the fear of the peasants. They feared noble conspiracy and armed brigands. Yet, as these hungry, restless and armed peasant bands began to use the opportunity created by the collapse of royal authority to rectify the wrongs of previous centuries, fear transferred itself from the hearts of the peasants to the hearts of their well-off neighbours. Quite understandably so, given the actions of these peasant bands. Rectifying the injustice of previous centuries, chateaus were ransacked and burnt, dovecoats destroyed, free pasturage was reclaimed, common areas taken back, tools and animals distributed amongst the raiding peasants. 
those who tried to stop this application of common justice were assaulted or killed. Perhaps most importantly, the peasants seemed to have a homing beacon on feudal Jews and signorial rights. Everywhere they would find the parchments which itemised their lord's rights and prerogatives and promptly burn them to a crisp, releasing themselves from their feudal obligations. The Venetian ambassador wrote that There no longer exists either executive power, laws, magistrates or police. The ambassador summarised simply by stating A horrible anarchy prevails. Forty chateaus were looted in Brittany, nearly 50 chateaus were pillaged in the Dauphine, and more than 70 were not only raided, but burnt in the Macanay. At the start of August, the steward of the Duke of Montgomery reported the sheer uncontrollable rage and anarchy that was unfolding in the countryside, stating, The populace, attributing to the lords of the kingdom the high price of grain, is fiercely against all that belongs to them. All reasoning fails. This unrestrained populace listens only to its own fury. The populace was indeed listening to its own fury, to its own logic. But then, who could blame them? One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. No? For the nobles who lost property, the anarchy was terrifying. For the bourgeoisie who believed in the sanctity of property rights and the rule of law, the violence was unacceptable. But to the peasants, the violence was not only acceptable, it was, in a way, necessary and just. Often when peasants raided manors and estates, they did so in the name of the nation. They invoked the concept of the national interest, conferring some sort of legitimacy upon their actions. The Madame of the Marquis of Longaway was left a note which simply read The Nation, after her property had been looted and ransacked, the titles of her signorial rights having been stolen. The Nation, that is to say, the Third Estate, was finally beginning to rid herself of the parasitic prerogatives of the privileged orders. Just as the radical elements of the revolutionary free press had been demanding for more than a year. When the nation was not invoked, the king's name was used instead. Fake letters circulated the countryside that the peasants considered to be orders from the king, permitting them to level their justice against their sinister noble neighbours. The same nobles who were no doubt conspiring with the queen and Artois for the destruction of the revolution. Despite their obviously fraudulent nature to us as removed observers, the peasants either took these signed orders from the king seriously, or, if they doubted their legality, chose to act on them anyway. One noble was informed that he wasn't on the list by an armed band of peasants near his estate, and that, by the will of the king, his property would be spared. Some nobles may have been spared due to these lists, but what was not spared was the peasants caught in the act. The bourgeoisie, who now controlled the city councils throughout the kingdom, were disgusted by the chaos in the countryside. The peasants were, after all, attacking property, be it brick-and-mortar chateaus or parchment-based feudal rights, and this assault on property could not and would not be tolerated. With the help of their new city militias, towns began setting up impromptu tribunals, hanging peasants caught in the acts of mass destruction. 
Furthermore, with the chaos interrupting the already patchy supply of food, towns began to send requisition squadrons to the countryside. To the peasants, who originally took up arms against brigands and foreign troops, the city militia who came to take grain by force from nearby towns, well, they were equally villainous. As a result, violence throughout the countryside only intensified as urban communities sought to quell the unrest and secure food supply. So, how did this escalating, fearful and increasingly bloody mess end? Well, the body with any resemblance of power and authority, the only body that could reign in this parade, was the National Assembly. But we'll cover what the National Assembly does next episode. What I want to touch on finally is the views of some historians about the Great Fear, about this orgy of violence, hysteria and destruction of property. Because, unsurprisingly, historians are bitterly divided over the Great Fear. Depending on one's viewpoint, it's remarkable the different ways the peasant violence can be interpreted. Perhaps, unsurprisingly, one key debate around the Great Fear is to do with class warfare. Is all this aristocrat-hanging, chateau-burning, feudal right-destroying activity an example of class warfare? Or does this great anarchy merely result in only some wealthy elites being targeted simply because they happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time? Historian Peter Kruuptin argues for the case that the great fear is not an example of blatant class warfare. He argues that the peasantry singled out not the nobility for their destruction, but only the feudal Jews and signorial rights which kept the peasantry oppressed. Only when elites tried to stop the peasantry, or were known for their speculation in grain or participation in other hated activities, did the nobility suffer themselves. Kruupkin writes, For a large number of the poorer nobles, residing in the country and perhaps loved by those around them, the revolted peasantry showed much personal regard. They did them no harm. But the registers and title deeds of feudal landlordism, they never spared. They burned them, after compelling the lord to swear that he would relinquish his rights. Like the middle classes of the towns, who knew well what they wanted and what they expected from the revolution, the peasants also knew very well what they wanted. The lands, stolen from the communes, should be given back to them, and all the Jews begotten by feudalism should be wiped out. The idea that rich people as a whole should be wiped out too may have filtered through from that time, but at that moment, the jacaray confined its attention to things, and if there were cases where the persons of some lords were ill-treated, they were isolated cases, and may generally be explained by the fact that they were speculators, men who made money out of the scarcity. If the land registers were given up and the oath of renunciation taken, all went off quietly. The peasants burned the registers, planted a may tree in the village, hung on its boughs the feudal emblems, and then danced round the tree. Otherwise, if there had been resistance, or if the lord or his steward had called in the police, if there had been any shooting, then the chateau was completely pillaged, and often it was set on fire. Thus, it is reckoned that 30 chateaus were plundered or burnt in the Dauphine, nearly 40 in the French Comte, 62 in the Mâconnais and the Beaujolais, 9 only in Avergne, and 12 monasteries and 5 chateaus in the Vinois. We may note, by the way, that the peasants made no distinctions for political opinions. They attacked, therefore, the houses of patriots, 
as well as those of aristocrats. Kruupton is painting a pretty rosy picture of events. It wasn't about politics, but personality. If a local noble was well regarded by their peasant neighbours, that nobleman had nothing to fear except for a loss of unjust and outdated property in the form of feudal rights. Only when nobles refused to step aside and permit the burning of these feudal rights did they receive the violent and all-encompassing destruction of property that the peasants were inclined to dull out occasionally. Kruupkin's view, in a way, seeks to justify the revolt of the downtrodden. Such a view is meant to say, well, these feudal rights were unjust and only the unjust would seek to stop their destruction and thus, in a way, it's reasonable for the peasants to deliver their mob justice upon those who stand in the way of their own liberation. But to paint the picture that only sinister and greedy nobles or bourgeoisie were harmed by the marauding peasants flies in the face of much evidence. If only the sinister, feudal right-claiming elites were harmed, then the personal experience of Arthur Young makes no sense at all. The Englishman, who we have heard from multiple times already this series, was travelling the countryside when it fell into disarray. And far from being left alone, his experience of peasant mobs was quite different. The whole countryside is in the greatest agitation. At one of the little towns I passed, I was questioned for not having a cockade of the third estate. They said it was ordained by the estates, and if I was not a signor, I ought to obey. But suppose I am a signor, what then, my friends? What then? They replied sternly, why, be hanged, for that, most likely, is what you deserve. It was plain this was no moment for joking, and the boys and the girls began to gather, whose assembling has everywhere been the preliminaries of mischief, and if I had not declared myself an Englishman, and ignorant of the audience, I had not escaped very well. Kruupkin stated that the peasants cared not for political allegiance or class identity, but Kruupkin didn't experience the revolution firsthand. Arthur Young did. And that experience was not his only close call with an untimely end. Soon afterwards, the cockade he purchased to get him out of trouble with the last lot of peasants flew away with a gust of wind. Upon entering the next town, Young was once again greeted by the possibility of mob violence condemning him for the crime of being wealthy. Young's experience lines up more with those historians who, unlike Kruupkin, believe that the wealthy were targeted as a general rule, and that class tensions were a core fuel for this revolt. Historian Ippolite Tane states the following. Here the situation is more tragic, for it is war in the midst of peace, a war of the brutal and barbaric multitude against the highly cultivated, well-disposed and confiding, who had not anticipated anything of the kind, who had not even dreamt of defending themselves, and who had no protection. Throughout the country, scattered chateaus are swallowed up by the popular tide, and, as the feudal rights are often in plebeian hands, it insensibly rises beyond its first overflow. There is no limit to an insurrection against property. This one extends from abbeys and chateaus to the houses of the bourgeoisie. 
The grudge at first was confined to the holders of charters. Now it is extended to all who possess anything. Well-to-do farmers and priests abandon their parishes and fly to the towns. Travellers are put to ransom. Thieves, robbers and returned convicts at the head of armed bands seize whatever they can lay their hands on. Cupidity becomes inflamed by such examples on domains which are deserted and in a state of confusion where there is nothing to indicate a master's presence all seems to lapse to the first comer. A small farmer of the neighbourhood has carried away wine and returns the following day in search of hay. All the furniture of a chateau in the Dauphine is removed, even to the hinges of the doors, by a large reinforcement of carts. It is the war of the poor against the rich, says a deputy, and on the 3rd of August, the Committee of Reports declares to the National Assembly that no kind of property has been spared. A war of the poor against the rich. A grudge that now extends to all those who possess anything. No kind of property has been spared. Taine doesn't depict a just and noble revolt of the peasantry, a revolt focused on liberating themselves from feudal rights. Taine depicts quite the opposite, an opportunistic, violent revolt fueled by the based instincts of mankind. By survival, by hunger, by revenge, by greed. There is no just revolt, no measured treatment of kind nobles versus sinister nobles. Only the chaos that comes when society stops to exist outright, when law and order vanishes, when the fear in the minds of the downtrodden no longer exists. While I personally side more with Taine, this argument will, of course, never be resolved. The argument between historians that surrounds the great fear will continue to be debated and continue to be grey history. But let us focus instead on another debate, one within the National Assembly, for how the deputies fix this complete and utter mess would have huge implications for the fledgling revolution. The remedy selected profoundly affected the course of the revolution, and indeed, as it turned out, the remedy would profoundly affect the course of humanity. Thank you for listening to episode 13, The Great Fear. Next episode, we'll be discussing the decrees and declarations which fundamentally define the character of the revolution of 1789. The abolition of privileges, the declaration of the rights of man, the debates over the king's veto and the structure of future national assemblies. All of these events would help to define the character of the revolution, but they would also define contradictions which the revolution would never escape and the inability of the revolutionaries to resolve these contradictions would have dire consequences. Before you go, if you've enjoyed today's episode of Grey History and you'd like to help the podcast, then there is something you can do, and that is spread the word. If you know anyone who you think might enjoy a history podcast that explores the grey, please tell them about Grey History. Also, if you have some questions about this episode or previous episodes, please send them through either through the website or the Facebook page. Thank you for listening and have a great day.